Mike. Lauren. Mike, when was the last time you had your car repaired? Um, well, I don't own a car, so I'm going to say 2005. And what was the experience like? Did you go to an independent repair shop? I did. Uh, the car was a Dodge B150 cargo van, so I think the dealership would have just like laughed at me. <laughs> so you had an older car, but we're going to talk about repairs in newer cars on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, Wired Senior Editor Michael Kalori. Hey, Mike. Hello. And we're also joined by Wired Senior Associate Editor Julian Chikatu, who's dialing in from New York. Hey, Julian. Hello. All right, thanks for joining me today. Today, we're talking about the right to repair. So right to repair is something that can be pretty personal to people, because a lot of us have stories about trying to get our electronics or appliances fixed. And later in the show, we're going to talk about our own (laughs) repairability gripes and experiences. But first, we're going to go to Massachusetts, virtually, because there's a ballot measure there that could have far-reaching consequences. So I'm going to give a quick synopsis of what's going on, and then I'll ask Mike and Julian for their takes. Back in 2012, Massachusetts passed a law that would give car owners and independent repair shops access to mechanical information from your card's onboard diagnostics port. You used to have to go to a dealership for a lot of repairs, and now anyone could plug a dongle into the OBD port and diagnose the problems with your car. Now, this was seen as a big win for the little guy, consumers and indie repair shops. And it was a landmark law, the first of its kind in the United States. But a lot has changed technologically since then. Cars have basically become computers on wheels. So repair coalitions started pushing a new law that would update the existing law. And now this year, that is question one on the Massachusetts ballot. It expands the kind of data that consumers and repair shops would have access to, to include wireless telematics. So telematics, what is that? Well, telematics, um, you know, Broadly, it can mean mileage and tire pressure and things like that, but it can also encompass a pretty significant amount of data. It can refer to location, speed, idling time, harsh acceleration or braking. Um, it could mean a lot. And as the ballot measure is written now, it's kind of unclear what it's referring to. So we now have right to repair advocates voting pretty much in favor of this update to the law to keep up with the times and make sure that consumers have access to or ownership of the data from their car. But opponents to this measure, particularly this one group that's got a lot of money from the big automakers, is saying, nope. (laughs) They have a lot of concerns with this ballot measure. And this summer, they unleashed, we'll just call it a FUD campaign, right, which we're going to talk about. Okay, so I want to get your thoughts. And Mike, I'm going to go to you first because you're from Massachusetts, right? Uh, Genetically, I'm from Massachusetts. Yes, I was born in Boston. Okay. So what's your take on this? Um, Well, I think it is kind of interesting that um, the major opponents here for GM and Toyota, 
They have been citing safety issues as the reason why third parties should not be able to um, access the data in their car, uh, in, in a customer's car. So like if you took it to an independent repair shop, they wouldn't be able to access this data. You would have to go to the dealership to access this data. Um, and they're citing these, you know, weird safety and security issues. Like they're saying that this could uh, cause increases in cyber stalking um, or in cyber attacks. Like you can, you know, roll up next to somebody on the freeway and then turn their car off wirelessly uh, using a, a, a hacking method. And yes, you can do that. But the actual like chance of that happening is really, really slim. Uh, same thing with cyber stalking. Like they say that, you know, if a third party can wirelessly access your, your car's uh, data, they can find out where you live. They can find out where you work. They can see uh, your GPS and they can, you know, follow you around and follow to your home. Some people have um, a uh, code to open the gate to their house or a code to open their garage door stored in their car. So they don't have to carry a separate clicker for it. Uh, and, you know, the the as the argument goes the hacker would be able to access that and then they'd be able to break into your home and like this is why they're telling people not to vote for it and those arguments feel pretty flimsy <laughs> yeah we saw that this summer when ads were released by a group called the coalition for safe and secure data and this is a coalition that's funded by the automakers that you mentioned and they put out a series of ads by the way those ads are now listed as private on youtube because they were uh, criticized for the ads that showed, you know, a woman being stalked in a garage as she approached her car or a man uh, wirelessly entering someone's home, um, presumably through the, you know, garage data. Um, and uh, and this is kind of the FUD that I was getting at before, right, that these are the concerns that are not technically impossible, um, but many on the repair side of the argument saw these concerns as overblown. Um, Mike, what's the parallel between what we're seeing with this argument over cars and consumer electronics or appliances more broadly? Um, well, the argument that makes a little bit more sense than the cyber attack thing is the same argument that uh, the big tech companies make when they argue against right to repair legislation. They say that we can't let you fix your gadget because you might hurt yourself uh, or you'll make it vulnerable to failure or vulnerable to hacks. Um, to a certain extent, that is a little bit true. Like if you, you know, I just want to replace the battery in my iPhone. Well, I'll, you know, I'll go to uh, the internet and I'll buy a replacement battery. I'll crack open my iPhone. I'll put the new battery in. And then that battery is like some, you know, weird off brand and it explodes. And then I have an exploding iPhone. That's harmful to me. Uh, it's also bad PR for the company that made the phone. Same thing with like even something simple like a replacement screen. You buy a replacement screen, maybe that's not an official part and you didn't have it officially installed and it doesn't work exactly right. Your experience using that gadget goes down and your customer satisfaction goes down. Um, it ends up, you know, leading to this sort of polluted uh, market for devices and for replacement parts and companies don't like to see that they like to have control over those things also there is a big business in repairs so repairing things and doing those repairs yourself you can charge whatever you want because you're locking everybody else out and it's sort of those two things that i think are the the sort of the most interesting parallels with the broader consumer technology industry and the most interesting arguments against right to repair Right. And what you're describing 
in many cases are physical components, right? If someone replaces their own cracked phone screen or their own phone battery, like you're talking about. But the argument expands quite a bit when you start to consider all the digital data that's floating around. And I think that's part of the this amendment to the, you know, the law that's being proposed in Massachusetts, right? That it's cars are transmitting more and more wireless data. So Julian, this, I mean, this kind of seems like an inevitability, right? Cars are just becoming computers on wheels. And so what, I mean, what do you make of this, both the fact that there is a proposed amendment to the law and and the argument against it? Yeah, I mean, if you look at all the ads that they've been putting out against this, I feel like you always just have to look at the experts. Usually in situations like this, you'll have uh, security watchdogs claiming that, you know, this is actually bad news. This is bad for the consumer because it's going to be dangerous. And all these threats are definitely very real. And when there's actual security concerns, these organizations step up and, and say that. But in fact, with, with this you know ballot measure, we've had those security organizations write an op-ed to the Boston Herald uh, to say that this isn't as big of a deal. So I think you just have to look at that climate where, you know, at the moment we aren't having those organizations coming out and saying, yeah, the car or manufacturers are right. This is definitely a security issue. Uh, if they're saying the opposite, I'm going to go out on a limb and believe them and not believe the GMs and Toyotas of the world that are funding the uh, opposition. Right. And at the same time, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration this past July put out a letter raising concerns about the vagueness of this ballot initiative and said that it would prohibit manufacturers from complying with cybersecurity hygiene best practices. So the NHTSA is actually not super in favor of question one and warned that there could be cybersecurity problems that arise as a result of expanding this access to data on cars. Um, Even though to your point, Julian, oftentimes it's the folks in the cybersecurity community who will you know, be pretty outspoken about what they see as real vulnerabilities versus ones that are overblown. Um, and I even spoke, to, I mean, I spoke to a lot of people in reporting out this story that's running on Wire.com about the Massachusetts ballot initiative. And I was surprised because one of the sources I spoke to seemed like he would be sort of a shoe-in for a yes on question one. But after the NHTSA put out its letter, he was pretty swayed by that and said, well, I feel like it's my professional obligation to actually vote against question one now. Whereas people on the right to repair side generally are like, all right, this might not be the hill we want to die on, but we still feel like it's an important step in consumer repairs. Yeah, I think a lot of the pushback I did see from some the few organizations that were not so uh, enthused by this ballot measure is that the timeline is just super, super short. You know, I think the ballot measure is saying that you have to have this compliance by 2022, and that's for the car models of 2022. So uh, that is, you know, already been in production. Car manufacturers are already, already producing those vehicles. So whether they can safely produce this uh, open standard where they can share this data to independent and other third parties uh, in, in a in a secure way that that doesn't seem that plausible, especially without um, you know rushing the process and potentially introducing other flaws. So I mean, if there was one thing I'd change, I would maybe put a a, a bit extend the deadline a little more. Um, but uh, overall, I think it's probably a good good thing for consumers. But that's the issue with this is that they might have to extend that deadline 
if they want to avoid some of this rushing and potentially introducing flaws in the overall process. Mike, any final words on this before we go to break? Yeah, you know, um, I just want to point out that with most right to repair arguments, the things that right to repair advocates are arguing for is access to uh, what's colloquially known as parts and tools, right? So that's everything from the screwdrivers that you use to open up the device to the dongle that you use to plug into the car. And then the tools can also mean software, um, any instruction manuals, any sort of documentation that you need in order to make use of the thing. So it's a philosophical question that consumers have to ask themselves. Like if you go out and you spend twenty-five, dollars $45,000 on a car and your car is generating all this information and storing it about how it's running, about how you're driving, about your habits. So should you be able to access that information? Should you be able to look at it to see how you're driving, how your car is operating, what those habits are? Should you be able to hand it to somebody who you trust, like your, your local technician to do those things? Or are you only allowed to have an authorized dealer look at it? And that's really what this is about. It's that sort of philosophical argument that like, I paid for this thing. I should be able to see how it's working for me. Mm-hmm. Well, early polling does suggest that the state of Massachusetts will vote overwhelmingly in favor of question one this year. The state voted 87% in favor of the first right to repair law that passed in 2012 and went into effect in 2013. So it is likely, I think, at this point that this will pass. And as Julian mentioned earlier, lots of local papers have come out in support of question one in Massachusetts. But I think what people are going to be looking to see is whether or not this sets a new standard for how other states might handle right to repair legislation. Right now, this is the only law of its kind in the United States, but around 20 states have considered right to repair legislation in recent years. It hasn't been a super high priority with everything else that's been going on in our world, but we may see more conversations about this in the future, and a lot of people will probably be referencing the Massachusetts law, and we'll be keeping an eye on that for Wired. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about our own repair dramas. All right, welcome back. We've talked a lot about this one case of right to repair in Massachusetts, but chances are there are many smaller, more immediate repairability issues that are affecting you right now or have affected you. I have a story about Apple Watch, but I want to go to you guys first. Julian, tell me your repair stories. Let's let's call this tech support. I have been fortunate that I haven't had any super traumatic incidents, but uh, this week I thought I had to repair my coffee machine, but turns out I just bought a bad batch of coffee beans. Thankfully, <laughs> I did not have to repair it at all. So you were but holding it wrong is what you're saying. Basically, yeah. <laughs> but I've had, uh, you know, I've sent cameras and laptops directly back to a manufacturer, got them repaired with no issues. The only problems that I seem to face are related to cost, which is the price of repairing some of the phones that I've tested where I've once was drinking coffee and everything seems to revolve around coffee, but I once was drinking coffee in a mug and I dropped the mug while I was holding the Samsung Galaxy Note 10. It was a review unit and the, I caught the mug before it fell, but the handle tipped right and tapped the camera module on the glass. So the glass on the camera module shattered, but the rest of the phone was fine. So I took it into a shop and they said that because of the way the phone was designed, 
they couldn't just replace the glass on the camera module, they had to replace the glass on the entire back of the phone, which is $200, $250. And to me, that was just like, are you kidding me? Like, it's just- Wait, was this, this, a, was this like an authorized Samsung repair shop or was it was it a random shop? It was Ubreak iFix, which is like, it is authorized by Samsung, but it is an independent repair um, company. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I just thought that because so many of those, the, the price issues stem from the way these phones are designed. Like if you look at iFixit's score of repairable phones, you know, most of the modern new phones like Samsung's Galaxy Note 20 Ultra is one of the lowest scores for repairability. Uh, the Surface Duo, for example, is another score to two out of 10. So, you know, a lot of these newer phones are just not that repairable. And you look at some of their top scores, and those are all phones from several years ago, uh, especially ones where you could just easily swap out a battery, because at the end of the day, that's one of the biggest issues that people have, that it's harder to replace batteries on a phone. That's gotten a little better lately, but I still think that repairing a phone is something that I think everyone should be able to do very easily. And it really starts with manufacturers being able to create and produce phones that are in fact repairable uh, and repairable friendly. Have you taken any steps in your tech life to buy things or assemble things that are inherently more repairable? I would say my situation is unique because I test so many random gadgets that the need for me to buy additional tech in my life is maybe feels a little unnecessary to me. But, uh, you know, for example, I did replace the belt on this Bissell uh, vacuum cleaner that I bought, which I feel like was was uh, it made me feel like an adult. Let's just say that. Uh, <laughs> but it's mostly because Bissell sells that available part. Uh, so I'm not sure whether how many of these other devices that I do buy have those part parts available, but it is definitely something I am considering when I buy feature parts. For example, this robot vacuum that I bought has several additional parts that you can buy from the manufacturers. So if I ever want to replace it, and it definitely seems like I have to replace it very soon, I can just go ahead and get those uh, repairable parts to swap in instead. Mike, what about you? What's your personal experience with uh, your gadgets and repairability? Well, you know, whenever I think about right to repair, I think about my musical instruments. Um, I've been playing guitar and bass, you know, my whole adult life, and I have all these instruments and I have all these old amplifiers. I've got some from the 1960s and 1970s. Those all are going to need maintenance like once every couple of years, right? You got to pull the tubes out, spray them with contact cleaner. Uh, you got to repair the speakers. You got to, you know, even like replacing the strings. Could you imagine like every time you want to replace your guitar strings, you have to take it to like an authorized Fender dealership to have your strings replaced? No, you just buy the strings and you can do it yourself, right? It's a big part of the culture of like, you know, playing music is you work on your stuff and you modify it and everybody has like a guy. I know it's a gendered term, but that's what we say. Like, you know, uh, I need my amp fixed. Do you have a guy? Yeah, I got a guy. So like everybody has this personal relationship with their gear and this personal relationship with the person that we outsource our repairs to when we have to. And I just, I look at it that way as like that sort of cultural aspect of it is a very special part of it. So, you know, I, like I grew up replacing PCI cards in my computers and putting RAM into boards and, you know, like making my own cables for my computers and stuff. And then, you know, you look at like 15 years ago or so um, with the with the Ultrabook revolution, uh, computers started showing up sealed and mm -hmm. glued together. 
you know, mm-hmm. just like a phone, like Julian was saying. And if you need this thing fixed, you can't fix it yourself. To me, that just still feels weird. And like, Julian, you, you still build your own computers, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think, something that I maybe, you know, a, a reason as to why I don't encounter so much repairability issues. Like, you know, I don't have a MacBook I need to repair because I built my PC. And, you know, if I have an issue with it, I can, you know, I have a mechanical keyboard that I can swap out the keys and the switches if I want. Uh, I have a PC that I built that I can, you know, if any one part starts to fail, I can just take it out and swap it out with something else or find a way to fix it or send it back to the manufacturer. So I think that's something that you kind of lose out with these enclosed devices. And that's just, I don't see that changing anytime soon um, because it's just the way that the companies want to build these things. Yeah. And I think, you know, like 20 years ago, that was a big part of of like using a computer is you had to like know computers, right? You had to know how to do those things and you, you knew where the RAM was because you had to replace it more often. And now that, you know, computers have just become completely ubiquitous and mainstream and just like, you know, boring, just like every other piece of advanced technology. Um, they're just semi-disposable now. Yep. I remember the first time I put RAM into one of my old MacBooks, and now I'm pretty sure you can't do that. Um, <laughs> but it was magical at the time. And in general, it seems as though the computer manufacturers are erring more and more on the side of a locked down, uh, hermetically sealed system, and then getting like mild kudos when they make small advancements that let you repair things more, the way that Microsoft did with Surface laptops, for example, when it first started making Surface laptops. And then I think it was iFixit that kept giving them incredibly low repairability ratings. And then one of the more recent Surface laptops that Microsoft put out, they made it slightly more repairable. And so they got some kudos for doing that. When in reality, maybe these products should just be designed that way from the start inherently so that we can fix them or customize them. Um, I mean, there are also environmental implications as well, which is what I encountered when I broke an Apple Watch a few years ago. I'd been wearing the Apple Watch Series 2, and I think I just nicked it against the side of a pool or something. It got a tiny little hairline crack in the display, and the display was no longer touch responsive. So I took it to the Apple store. I said, I want to get my Apple Watch fixed because I really like the Apple Watch. And, uh, And what I learned through that process was that there's a certain type of crack that once the watch gets cracked in that manner, it's really no longer fixable. You're talking about really, really tiny components in a, in a computer this size. And so they effectively just chuck the module, maybe they recycle it, but they have to replace the watch. And I think, you know, I don't remember exactly what I paid the first time around. It was probably somewhere between 300 and $350. And the repair cost was $269. <laughs> and so I was just thinking, this is utterly, it's utterly ridiculous, first of all, that I would have to pay that much for the replacement. But also just knowing that there are millions of these little watches that are potentially ending up in landfills. I mean, that's, that's just, ter- it's just terrible. And if I could have fixed the watch, or it could have been fixed, I would have just kept it probably for a couple more years, right? It would have expanded the longevity of the device. Um, I've fixed my own iPhones before. I tend to crack my uh, my smartphones. I drop them. Uh, I'm probably sounding very accident prone. I don't think I really am, but but maybe yeah, I am. You are. And and uh, you know I've used different kits before to replace the display and whatnot. But then over time, you know, the iPhone it it. Uh, First, Apple started using Touch ID sensors, and then it got rid of like basically a, any kind of like front interface entirely, and then like, everything became all the componentry became more like integrated. And 
there's just they're really complicated to fix and and that's intentional uh so so i think in general repairability is an important issue it's one that we continue to cover and it's one i think that uh original manufacturers should certainly take more care around um but that's also something that's perhaps unlikely to happen when there are special interests and lots of lobbying and um, lots of FUD, as we've talked about, involved in these matters. Can I tell you guys my uh, my fun story? Um, when I first started college as a freshman, this is in the early 90s at the University of Vermont, I moved into my dorm room and I saw that there was a, a RJ45 jack in the wall right like an ethernet jack in the wall and i was like oh cool there's data in the room and i'd never seen that before so i went to the computer store next to the campus and bought a 10 base t network card uh put it in my computer put plug the cable into the wall and nothing worked so i called you know computer services or whatever at uvm and said the data jack in my room doesn't work and they said oh we'll turn that on for you so they turned it on i had internet in my room the other people living on my floor were like, how did you do that? And I said, oh, I'll do it for you. It's really simple. So I would go down to the store. I would pay, you know, $28 for this card, uh, install it, plug it into the wall, and then stand there in their room and make that phone call and say, hey, the internet in my room isn't working. Uh, and I did this for like three or four people. And then one time I made that call and they said, you know, who is this? What are you doing? <laughs> It turns out that the the computer services people will come to your room and install a 10 base T card in your computer and charge you like $65. So what I was doing by going out and buying the part and just doing it for free was it was taking business away from them. So they found me out and they like instituted this new policy that if you just called up and said i need you to turn the the you know well i don't know if i don't know if this is a new policy or if it was a policy that was in place and they were just ignoring it but they made it so that if you called and said can you please turn on the data connection in my room they would ask you for like a, a work order number or some sort of proof that you had paid them to come and install the card so you were like not allowed to modify your own computer to work on the internet connection in your room um, like you had to pay them to do it for you. So it was a total racket. And then you started a side hustle and you called it like Mike's <laughs> Friendly Repairs and you started charging people just like the cost of a keg to basically fix an entire floor of computers. Well, at that point in my life, I didn't drink, but okay. that would have been an appropriate payment that I did not think of. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, it's time for recommendations. All right, it's time for recommendations, and I'm not sure that anything is going to top last week's recommendation from Galad Edelman. He simply said to um, make a batch of lemon wedges and keep them in your fridge, and that was quite literally his recommendation. But I think we're going to have some good ones regardless this, this week. So, uh, Julian, let's go to you first. What is your recommendation for our listeners? I have a recipe for hot chocolate, and because it's it's the season, so you know the weather's getting cold. You need a nice warm drink, and my go-to has been using raw cacao powder. Uh, you put two tablespoons in two cups of milk. If you want to, you know, drink two cups of milk, go for it. But I usually split it with my partner. Uh, and then you add a, you know, tablespoon of honey, and 
a half teaspoon of vanilla extract, a dash of salt, and then some cayenne pepper if you want, but I, I like the, the added heat. My partner does not, so that's a little, little uh, if, you, if you want that. And then uh, just put it on the stove and, and warm it up, and that's it. That, give it a nice whirl, uh, mix it all up, and you have a really nice uh, glass of hot chocolate. And I have to say that I did not come up with that myself at all. That is a recipe I found on the internet. It's from, from Scratch Fast, uh, a recipe site on the internet. So uh, credit to them, and uh, I hope you guys make that because it's very delicious. Cayenne pepper in hot cocoa. Wow. Oh yeah. Just yeah, a yeah. dash. That's pretty cool. This is this might actually top Galad's recommendation. <laughs> Mike, have you tried this before? Um, I mean not that particular recipe, but do you mean like putting putting chili in in hot yeah. chocolate? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's the best. It's essential. Wow. Just don't overdo it like my first try, and it was a very <laughs> spicy drink. <laughs> Maybe that's why your partner didn't love it. <laughs> Basically. Nice, Julian. Thank you so much for that recommendation. No Mike, what's yours? Uh, mine is actually, it goes quite well with what Julian just recommended. So thank you, Julian, for teeing this up for me. Um, I'm going to recommend Pan de Muerto, the bread of the dead. Um, if you live in a part of the world that has a, uh, a robust and active uh, population of Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, you might know about the holiday, the Day of the Dead. It takes place on November 1st and November 2nd every year, just after Halloween. Uh, Dia de los Muertos, as we say in the United States, um, with the appropriate American accent. It is a holiday for remembering um, the people in your family who have passed on. So, you know, your elders or brothers and sisters who have died. And um, it's, you know, a way of celebrating their life and celebrating their memory. And the way to do this is to have a little altar in your home to make delicious drinks, maybe like some spicy hot chocolate, and to eat pan de muerto, the bread of the dead. This is a um, sweet bread. It usually is coated with sugar, and it has like anise and uh, orange flavoring in it. And you can buy it at any Mexican grocery um, pretty much from the beginning of October until this weekend. But it's everywhere right now. Um, if you have a Mexican grocery, you can probably find it. Or you can make it yourself. It's very easy to make. Uh, it's a yeasty bread, so you have to let it rise. And um, the seasonings are all things that you can just buy off the shelf in any grocery. It doesn't have to be like a, a Mexican grocery. Uh, so I would recommend either buying or making some pan de muerto and heating it up and eating it and thinking about your loved ones and drinking some hot chocolate. I regret that I don't have a food to recommend or a drink, but maybe you can drink hot chocolate and eat pan de muerto while you're watching Ted Lasso. Oh, nice. <laughs> that is my recommendation this week. Some of you might remember that a few weeks ago, I recommended Apple TV Plus, the company's new subscription streaming service. One of the shows on there I finally got around to watching in totality, Ted Lasso. It's a delightful program about an American football coach who um, gets the job managing a British soccer team. And hilarity ensues, but also the main character uh, is delightfully optimistic. It's laugh out loud funny. I really enjoyed it. I would say Ted Lasso for president, except that I already voted for president. Already sent my ballot in and very clear on who I'm voting for. Uh, so my recommendation is Ted Lasso. And my next recommendation is, in fact, for you to vote because it's an incredibly important election. All right. That's our show. 
Thanks to Julian for joining us. And thanks, Mike, for your insights as well. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having me. Yes. <laughs> and thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, if you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes and we'll include links to those recipes and show as well. This podcast is produced by Boone Ashworth. Happy Halloween, everybody. Goodbye for now. And don't forget to vote. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.